Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hello! I'm Howard Dory. I'm Jessica Dory. And welcome to Plotting Through the Presidents, where we take irreverent dives into lesser-known stories about the early American founders and their families. And I'm not privy to these stories ahead of time, so it is a surprise to me, just like it is to you, as we sit here on the mic. So I'm excited to hear what we have today. This week's story has a special emphasis on families. Oh, I love that. That's what makes these characters so interesting, is the families that surround them. Our story today starts out with a historic earthquake, the first earthquake in Virginia's recorded history. Now, you're a lot more familiar with earthquakes than I am. You Mm -hmm. grew up in the San Fernando Valley. Yes. A real live valley girl. Yes. So the the comments about me being a valley girl and sounding like a valley girl, what are you trying to say? I am. (laughs) You can't help it. You were born that way. I was born this way. And yeah, of course I sound like a valley girl because I I did grow up here. Yes. And I've experienced some earthquakes. You went through the 1994 Northridge earthquake and I've never gone through anything like that. Um, Before we started, I asked you to jot down a few notes of what that was like. Like what sticks out in your memory from feeling that? By the way, I love it when you give me assignments. It makes me feel very needed and powerful. So thank you for that. You did have me jot down some memories of what it was like to experience the Northridge earthquake. That was 1994. So I was 11 years old. Um, So it's not like vivid memories because I was pretty young. The first big thing was the shaking I remember was so big that it was disorienting, especially since it was in the middle of the night. It was so large. It was disorienting. I had no idea what was happening in the moment, you know, that it actually Mm. started shaking. I remember being um, thrown from my bed. So I was, I, I'm not sure if it was like across the room. It was probably just next to my bed, but it felt brutal. I remember kind of falling out of bed, but not falling. I was being tilted. Mm. So it was, it was very disorienting. Yeah, you were, I think, maybe 10 miles from the epicenter. Really? Yeah. Oh, see, I didn't even know that. But um, it, yeah, very scary. After that, after being thrown from my bed, I don't really have a memory of getting up or leaving the room. But I, my next memories are really in the hallway. So my whole family, including two friends, because my sister and I both had someone who were sleeping over. And so we had two friends there that night, too. So it was quite quite a, a group sitting in our hallway, which my parents felt was the safest place. Uh, so we were all lining the hallways, including my my terrified dog. I remember mm. she was sitting with us too, her ears back or her eyes very worried. When you have an earthquake that big, the aftershocks are, are quite yeah. big too. So there were a number of aftershocks for you know hours and hours after that and for days after that. And those aftershocks were actually pretty large earthquakes as well. So I just remember kind of a family feeling, you know, very like this camaraderie between us in the hallway, but also feeling like it was like this endless bout of time. But growing up here, um, I I get horrified. You know, I have this like traumatic response to even the littlest earthquakes. Yeah. 
You've probably noticed that about me by now. Even the littlest of tremors, I I bolt up, I bolt to the children. I'm in the hallway or in an archway so quick. Um, and you're like sauntering around like, why are you, what's going on? Um, but you have more of a trauma response to tornadoes. Yeah, that's why I moved to California. That's really <laughs> the only reason. That's the only reason. <laughs> Today, we're going to talk about the mysterious death of Elizabeth Jefferson, sister of Thomas Jefferson, who drowned after an earthquake. Oh my gosh. This is one of my favorite blog posts that you wrote. This story is so fascinating, the mystery behind it and how this family handled their own disaster. I mean, it was it's just very interesting. And since writing about that years ago, uh, I found some new pieces to add to the story and I'm really? excited to share them with you. Oh my gosh. Uh, a lot of that comes from a book called The Jeffersons at Shadwell by Susan Kern. It's a great look at the early life of Thomas Jefferson and his family and slavery in Virginia and how archaeology informs history. Wow. And part of that, today we're not just going to talk about Elizabeth Jefferson, but we're also going to talk about the enslaved body servant who died with her. Oh my gosh. So I'm so excited about this for multiple reasons. But okay, so... A, you're bringing up one of my favorite blog posts from Plotting Through the President's blog. B, we're going to be talking about how all these different people were treated in that time during a disaster. And C, there's new information. <laughs> so I'm a, I'm a little bit, I can, I'm going to contain myself. <laughs> all right. I hope I can live up to your expectations. I think you will. I think you usually do. All right. So this is, <laughs> this is really the story of two families. Okay. The Jefferson family and the Evans family. It's a story of natural disasters, bizarre and tragic deaths, a lot of mystery, a little bit of architecture, and some really lazy history writing from different biographers through the years. (laughs) We're going to start with Shadwell. Let me take you to the Piedmont of Virginia in 1774, to the southwest edge of the Blue Ridge Mountains, to the Jefferson properties. So Thomas Jefferson was 31 years old and living in the still and perpetually under construction Monticello with his wife Martha. They had just gotten married two years earlier. They had one daughter they called Patsy, and Martha was also seven months pregnant at this time. Across the Ravana River was his birthplace, Shadwell. His mother still lived there, along with some of the youngest siblings, including Elizabeth, who was just a year and a half younger than him. Their father, Peter Jefferson, had died almost 20 years earlier. So the Jefferson family, they might have lived in the middle of nowhere, with miles of forests and rivers and hills and tobacco fields, but they weren't living like pioneers by any means. They had everything a fine Virginian family could want. A big, nicely furnished house, Mm -hmm. a dining room that could seat 20 people, silver, and people. So they sound pretty wealthy. They they were. And still slave owners. (laughs) They enslaved around 60 people at this time. Wow. In fact, each Jefferson child had their very own enslaved person who was basically the same age they were. Oh, gosh. My heart just threw up in its mouth. Yeah. So they, you're talking about enslaved children, is what you're saying? Yes. There may have been eight Jefferson children, but there were really 16 children growing up in the house. Their body servants would start out as playmates, and they were groomed to learn the preferences of their masters so that when the Jefferson child came of age, they could take full ownership of someone who knew them their entire lives and who was an expert in their particular needs. Wow, that is some 
some barbaric thinking. <laughs> that is very disturbing. Yeah, and these were the, the privileged enslaved people there. Wow. So did they sleep in the house? Yeah, they slept in the house, sometimes in the same room, it sounds like. Oh, wow. So, but this is just a 60 privileged slaves. No, there were 60 total enslaved people there. And each of the eight children had their own person. Who slept in the house. Their own body servant. Just barbaric. It's just... Thomas Jefferson's personal body servant, who was born the same year he was, was named Jupiter. Probably Jupiter Evans, we think. That's an incredible name. Yeah. When Jefferson went off to college, Jupiter went with him and handled all of his bills and his needs. He was always on hand for whatever his master needed. There's a letter from Thomas Jefferson that he wrote to a friend when he was about 20 years old that he ends with, my head aches, my candle is just going out, and my boy asleep, so must bid you adieu. His boy was probably Jupiter, and he would have been expected to keep Jefferson's candles going. Oh, wow. Yeah. By 1774, where our story is set, Jefferson had replaced Jupiter as his personal valet with Robert Hemings, an 11 or 12-year-old boy who he sort of inherited when um, his wife Martha's father died. And that inheritance included Robert's siblings, including Sally Hemings, who was just a toddler at this time. Wow, I'm just disgusted by this. God forbid Jefferson light his own fucking candles. Yeah. I'm just so disgusted that he could have freed these people, and he didn't. And I'm just disgusted about... What it's what it led to. What, I mean, can I ask effect- you to save some of your disgust because it's not going to get less disgusting? Okay, All it right. isn't. All right, I'm sorry. Are you, are you trying to tell me to shut up? No, no. Being I just too talkative I, I don't for want you? you to blow your disgust load early. I there, you know, there is no cap to this disgust load. I can attest to that. <laughs> okay, go. But Thomas kept Jupiter and he put him in charge of the stables, which he may have actually preferred to shaving Thomas Jefferson. Jupiter was eventually trained in stonemasonry. There's so little that remains of these enslaved families' history, these people who helped build America, but some things do remain. I feel like I'm about to cry. I don't know. Like, these these families were just erased. Here's a what picture. Are you showing me here? This is a picture of the main entrance to Monticello. Oh, wow. Jupiter helped craft those stone columns, which still stand. And there's a close-up of one in the next picture. Wow. So he wasn't just like chiseling rock. He was, I mean, he made huge columns. Yeah. They're beautiful. I mean. Even though Jupiter wasn't a body servant to a Jefferson anymore, his younger sister most likely was. Jupiter's sister, little Sal, she was another daughter of a Jefferson slave named Sal. No relation to Sally Hemings. Like most people Mm -hmm. in Virginia at this time seem to be named Sally. Sal was a huge part of the Jefferson's children's upbringing. It's very likely that she breastfed Thomas and his siblings just as she did her own kids in this house. Oh, wow. That's how close the families were intertwined. In fact, Thomas Jefferson's very first memory is of being lifted upon a pillow by a slave onto a horse. Mm. The institution From was just a such a part of him. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's just... Yeah, the institution, like you said, is just woven into his identity. Yeah. I mean, I get that that's part of why he probably couldn't let go, but it's it's still, it's just so disgusting to me. Yeah. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. 
On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. History never says goodbye. It just says, see you later. Edward Galliano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form. And that's the reason I produce the podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time, and the show has a long name. My history can beat up your politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts. The Earthquake. Okay. February 21st, 1774. At 2.11 p.m., the Earth started shaking. At its epicenter, 80 miles away from Shadwell, some buildings were ripped off of their foundations. Mm. Church bells as far as 250 miles away in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, rang. So I have to imagine that this might have seemed almost apocalyptic for people who had never experienced anything like this in their lives. There were no recorded earthquakes in Virginia before this. And this was probably a 4.5 on the mm-hmm. Richter scale, they think. I was going to ask But that. the intensity was, was right up there with a major earthquake. Mm. I mean, if you've never felt the ground shake, a 4.5 is alarming, yeah. <laughs> for sure. At Shadwell and Monticello, Jefferson wrote that it shook the earth so sensibly that everybody ran out of doors. One of the people who ran outdoors was Thomas's sister, Elizabeth Jefferson, and she never came home. Thomas wrote that her body was found three days later, and she was buried 11 days after that. What exactly happened to her is a mystery, but we have some clues. The best clue we have comes from a family friend, Wilson Miles Carey, and it was written like maybe 70 or 80 years later. Jefferson's great-granddaughter, Sarah Randolph, was preparing a biography called The Domestic Life of Thomas Jefferson, and she reached out to Carey for some info on Elizabeth, and he wrote to her and said, I have always understood that she was very feeble-minded, if not an idiot, that she and her maid drowned together while attempting to cross the Ravana in a skiff. It's just one sentence, but there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, th- there is a lot to unpack there. I <laughs> so, mean, how the way they're using those words, it sounds like they're making a comment about her, like an intellectual disability. Absolutely. Like saying she was feeble minded, if not an idiot, it sounds kind of harsh and insulting. Right. Those were the medical terms back then. There were schools for the feeble minded. Huh. And we don't have a lot of details about Elizabeth to back up that claim, uh, except We do know that Jefferson was involved in managing some aspects of her estate that were unusual for a woman of her age. 
Mm. So apparently, even when she was of age, he agreed with the executors of their father's will that she should be well-dressed and saw to that. Wow. So she, you know, she clearly wasn't independent. It, it would seem so. And this really is fascinating to me. I don't know. Only our personal friends who are listeners know this about me, but my day job <laughs> is an occupational therapist. Yes, yeah, so I was going to ask if you I, wanted to kind of speak to that. Yeah. So I work in the school systems with children with special needs. And so this blog post that you had uh, made and then this podcast, it's like it really it really hits home for me. Yeah. I'm, I'm very curious what you'll think as we go on. Yeah, I'm, I have so many questions. Yeah, back then in Virginia, there's not a lot of historical material about how people with special needs were treated. Mm-hmm. We know if they ended up in the criminal system, it would be mentioned that they were an idiot or that they couldn't be held accountable for signing contracts or that kind of thing. But if they were part of a well-to-do family, mm-hmm. a lot of their history is just kind of hidden. It just wasn't mentioned or talked about. I think that's what's rubbing me the wrong way yeah. is that her life seems very mysterious, Mm -hmm. not written about. Yeah. With the common medical terms from Wilson Carey, we're starting from a fairly respectful place in terms of language about Elizabeth Jefferson. But then her great-great-niece, Sarah Randolph, kind of expanded on that in her book about Jefferson. She wrote, After the death of his sister Jane, which is Thomas's older sister, Jefferson had no congenial intellectual companion left in the family at Shadwell his other sisters being all much younger than himself, except one who was rather deficient in intellect. Wow. Then she took, yeah. Then she took it a little further and speculated. It is curious to remark the unequal distribution of talent in the family. Each gifted member seeming to have been made. So at the expense of one of the others, she's talking about the fact that Thomas's older sister, Jane was very bright and they were very close. And she's probably also referencing Thomas's little brother, Randolph. Did he have an intellectual disability as well? It's speculated that he did. And by the way, everybody in Virginia, if they're not named Sally, they are a Randolph in some way, (laughs) um, which includes Jefferson's family. And it makes it even more confusing because his first name is also Randolph. (laughs) Anyway, Randolph Jefferson. um, Yes, it's been speculated that he had uh, intellectual disabilities or I don't know what the best term for that is. Yeah. Okay. One biographer, Fawn Brody, called Randolph less than mediocre in talent and native intelligence. But I don't know, based on the correspondence that Randolph wrote and the fact that he was a farmer, he had a family, he was well-known locally for his fiddle playing, most historians agree that he was typical. Uh, I think the attraction of contrasting the brilliant Thomas with his siblings was just too great for some writers. And I read through some of the letters that Randolph wrote he was no Thomas Jefferson in terms of writing or even spelling ability. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. There's a story that Randolph, who owned a nearby plantation called Snowden, was confronted with the problem of squirrels eating his corn. (laughs) Supposedly, he investigated the problem and determined that the squirrels were only eating the outside row. And he proposed that he could solve the problem by not planting any rows on the outside. But then wouldn't they move just straight to the inside rows? Is this Randolph's problem solving? Yes. Okay. Yes, you get it. Uh, So Um, I get that there's some lack of forward thinking there. (laughs) It sounds like he may have been the butt of some jokes. Yeah. But Sarah Randolph's idea about the unequal distribution of Jefferson talent and the way that she talked about Elizabeth actually seems flattering compared to other biographers of Jefferson who really played it up. How so? Paige Smith, who wrote Thomas Jefferson, a revealing biography in 1976, 
decided to add some drama to the speculation about Elizabeth's intellect and wrote that she was perilously close to being mentally retarded. I don't know what that means, and I'm pretty sure that Paige Smith didn't know either. Right. Perilously close to being... Perilously close. And that, I mean, no proof of that, first of all. No. (laughs) There's no actual source that that describes the disability that Elizabeth may have had. It's just speculative, melodramatic language. Yeah, that pisses me off. Yeah. An even more famous Jefferson biographer, Dumas Malone, he wrote that colorful, like, six-volume Jefferson biography that I have. Oh, yeah. That that I sort of borrowed from your parents. You stole from my parents. (laughs) I think I asked them if I could... Borrow it, and then you kept it. (laughs) Yeah. And and they were okay with that since you were getting some more use out of it than they were. Um, well, Dumas alone chose to ponder about the huge contrast in Thomas and Elizabeth's intellect in a super gross way. Oh, great. Yeah, Can't he, wait. He wrote, whether Jefferson's mother Jane exhausted herself in bearing Thomas or there was some mishap in the delivery, the child she bore just after him was subnormal. The later story of this unfortunate girl can wait. But at least it can be said here that Elizabeth Jefferson afforded little companionship to her well-endowed brother. Oh, that is gross. Ew, Dumas. Oh, Dumas. Not cool. So let me get this straight. Well, so, okay, yeah, you get this straight and then I'll get it straight. Yeah, okay. So Dumas um, is saying Jefferson's brain was so big, so brilliant, and so well-endowed that his mother was just simply exhausted after pushing it out. So it follows that her body just didn't have enough magic left to produce a normal child. So the next child to fall from her loins, Elizabeth, was subnormal and couldn't possibly provide any companionship or value to the extraordinary Thomas Jefferson, who was, without doubt, the best thing that ever came out of Jane Jefferson's tired vagina. (laughs) Okay, yeah, that's so gross on so many levels. Ew, Dumas. Ew, Dumas. I'm not... I'm not a fan of that statement um, for multiple reasons. Number one, it's not mama's fault. Okay. Don't bring it back to mama's loins and that somehow that played a role in why Elizabeth may have had disabilities. That's so mom shaming right there. And um, I think propping up Jefferson on a pedestal, that's just a little too high. Yeah. But um, the grossest part about that Mm -hmm. is indicating or implying that someone with disabilities has no value. I mean, yeah. that's the biggest and most disgusting part of that statement. And and it really rubs me the wrong way when someone with severe disabilities is thought of to be worthless mm-hmm. or not valuable to the world. You know, I've had clients who have passed away and, you know, people around me say, well, it's probably best. No, it's uh. not. It's not probably best. Just because your child has disabilities doesn't mean that they're less valuable to you or the world. Wow. So it's um it's a really disgusting frame of reference. It's a I don't like that mentality at all. No. Every child has worth and meaning in this world, and Elizabeth was no less. Even yeah. though I don't know the extent of her disability, I don't know. We don't know. That's the point. Sorry. No, that was great. Um, so back to Paige Smith who wrote that Elizabeth was perilously close to being mentally retarded. What it sounds like he's suggesting is that her intellectual capabilities had something to do with her death. And this is how he wrote about her death. On February 21st, 1774, Monticello was shaken by a strong earthquake, which drove everyone from the house. In the excitement, Jefferson's afflicted sister Elizabeth, then in her 30th year, disappeared. 
It was two days before she was found, more dead than alive. She more di- dead than alive? Yeah. She died a few days later and was buried in the family plot near Dabney Car. Oh, because she wasn't dead yet. So they found her not, they found her alive? Oh, you would think, right? You would think maybe they found her alive. Maybe mm, Paige Smith like found it. some evidence that Elizabeth was found alive, and this is why he said she was found more dead than alive. No. N- no, there's no, no evidence of that. <laughs> no. Um, he just made it up. <laughs> it's not based on anything. We don't even know. We don't know if she was dead or alive when she was found. But just because you don't know doesn't mean that you can split the difference and put her in some quasi state <laughs> of being that's more bullshit than fact. <laughs> Gosh. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head with you need to write something and it maybe it needs to be melodramatic and people will believe what they're reading in these sources. Yeah, I totally get the impetus to make history sound more exciting. I mean, that's what we're yeah. doing right here. Yeah, but you're always truthful because you I do try to be. I you try do to be. you do months of research ahead of time to get these stories as accurate as possible. And I know it's a big pet peeve of yours when people make statements that aren't confirmed or yeah. have no primary sources. I, I mean, people read these biographies and they they take everything as fact. And I think that it's not too much to ask that you just not make stuff up. Right. There are no letters to or from Elizabeth Jefferson that could be because she was illiterate or there was a house fire in 1770 that could have destroyed most of any records. And most Virginians were notoriously more private and intentionally burned their most personal letters. So there's a lot of reasons for that. It's just interesting, even after her death, that he didn't write about her ever. No one wrote about his sister. Yeah. This is the type of underground history that you're not learning about in the classrooms I didn't even know he had a sister with disabilities um, until you wrote about it. So I was well into my adulthood before I even knew she existed. And it sounds like she was kind of a a family secret in general and that her burial was too. It's, It's possible, yeah. We know so little about Elizabeth as a person. We've talked today about pretty much all of Jefferson's surviving references to her. The others are just purely financial notes. We don't know how he really felt about her death. It's speculated that he might have been thinking about her when he saved a clipping of a poem in his memorandum book. The poem's called Elegy on the Death of an Idiot Girl. Wow. Yeah. It's a rough title. I suppose it was sweet in its time. Um, Do you want to hear a little bit of it? Yeah, definitely. Of an idiot girl. I mean, that just brings... It sounds awful. That that was the medical term at the time. So there wasn't really a more polite way to say that. Yeah. But it also reminds me about how we should always use person first language. Yeah. I mean, we never want to define anybody by traits about them, you know. Yeah, and that's even, I mean, interchangeably, I try not to use the word slave all the time. These are people. They were enslaved people. Right. Um, But sometimes interchangeably, I'll use different terms to mix it up. But it's it's the same kind of thing in person-first language. Like, these are people. Yes. So, person with this disability, not disabled person. Right. I wish we knew more about her. Me too. Okay, yeah. Bring on the poem. Her tongue, unable to display the unformed chaos of her mind, no sense its rude sounds could convey, but to parental instincts kind. For what a burst of mind shall glow when disencumbered from this clod, thou who on earth couldst nothing know, shall rise to comprehend thy God. Mm. I mean, I don't know if Elizabeth, you know, the extent of her disability, but... It sounds like she may have not even been fully verbal. Yeah, we. If we just this don't was know. anything like her, you yeah, know? we just don't know. But I mean, this poem—it's just the idea that there's something wrong with her that God will earth. fix. Yeah, which I mean, I don't know why 
it, he didn't think to fix that on earth if it was a problem and right. what's by design and what's not. It's just, I don't know, it's, it's comforting thoughts, I guess, to, mm-hmm. to those people that somehow her soul was... Fixed. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he, that really rubs me the wrong way, too. I mean, yeah, because, I don't know, these disabilities shouldn't necessarily be fixed. They're not going to be fixed. And again... Elizabeth probably brought her own value to this world. And part of that was because of her disability. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So I, it's hard to know. We just don't know. We just don't know what she was like. But I kind of heard the poem as um, a little differently, just because it was interesting to think about what her mind would have, might have been like. Yeah. And just how she may have comprehended God in general and her universe. And I don't know. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Definitely. When I first wrote about this story... I thought that the maid that Wilson Carey mentioned in his letter, the one who drowned with Elizabeth, I thought yeah. it, it sounded kind of fishy. I thought, you know, Thomas and his biographers never mentioned her. I even thought there was a chance that maybe she'd been made up so that it would look like Elizabeth was actually being attended to when maybe she wasn't. Because uh, mm-hmm. everybody else was speculating about this case. I figured, why not me? <laughs> uh, but I didn't realize this was a lack of my research. The identity of the maid mentioned in Carey's letter is actually known. She was Little Sal. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about Little Sal. She was Jupiter's sister. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like she was Elizabeth's body servant. Maybe not her original one because... uh, When you say body servant, I know you've said this before, but does that mean like the body servant isn't necessarily someone who just dresses them, but it's it's someone who is watching out for them day to day? Yeah. I mean, it, it is somebody who belongs to you and their responsibility is to take care of all of your needs. It's your one-on-one enslaved person. Mm -hmm. Uh, It sounds like Elizabeth's original body servant was a woman named Kate, but Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson had been leasing Kate for a while and she finally became his property in 1773. So it might've been then that little Sal took over the job. So maybe she'd only been working one-on-one with Elizabeth for a year or so. We don't know. Mm -hmm. Or it's possible that when Elizabeth was younger, she might've had more help than her siblings. Maybe she had more than one body servant. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth was 29 years old when she died, and little Sal was 22. Mm, Sad. At that time, little Sal had already had two children, Cyrus and Rachel. Mm. But four years earlier, she lost Rachel in a tragic turn of events. What happened? For that, we go to Snowden. Okay the nearby plantation that was handed down from Peter Jefferson, Thomas's father, to his brother Randolph. So squirrels were really the least of the problems there. Right. Randolph was only 15 years old at this time, so he wasn't yet in possession of the property, and he certainly wasn't running it, uh, but it was going to be his when he turned of age. The overseer of the farm there, uh, who'd been there for years, had just retired, and a new overseer took over named Isaac Bates. This was not a good thing for the enslaved people of Snowden especially for a young woman named Hannah. We don't know many details, but we know that Isaac Bates whipped Hannah to death. Oh, God. This was such an egregious act that Thomas Jefferson, representing his brother Randolph, had Bates arrested and was suing him. We don't have a record of how that turned out, though. Oh, my gosh. What we do know is that the Snowden plantation was down one slave. What a demonic human being. Yeah. So... Thomas and Randolph's mother, Jane, made up for that by giving Rachel, little Sal's two-year-old daughter, to Randolph. So she would be moved to Snowden and separated from her mother. Oh, God. 
You're right. My disgusting, my disgusting load, my disgusted <laughs> load is like reaching a cap. You're right. <laughs> this is so disgusting. Yeah. We don't know how Can little. Can you imagine your two-year-old no. daughter being taken from you? We don't know for sure that she was taken right away or if it was just understood that she would be moved there when she was older, but it definitely meant that they would be separated. Mm. And this had happened just a few years before that earthquake. And so this is Little Sal's. Yeah, Little Little Sal's daughter. daughter. So aside from her daughter, Little Sal had already been separated from her brother Jupiter and her sister Kate, Mm -hmm. who were living across the river with Thomas at Monticello. Mm -hmm. We can only imagine how she must have felt then, just like we can only imagine what happened on that February day in 1774 when the earth started shaking. There was an aftershock just as strong later the same day and then another the next day. There was near record flooding of the Rivanna River that week. Mm. Jefferson noted that it was even worse than a flood that had washed out a neighbor's bridge. We don't know. Was Elizabeth- He wrote about all those details, but not about his sister. <laughs> was Elizabeth trying to get to her brother? Was little Sal trying to get to her brother? Were they both? We don't know. Mm. Virginia Scharf wrote in her book, The Women Jefferson Loved, Thomas made no mention of the death of the enslaved woman he had known for most of his life, sister of the man who attended to his daily needs and cared for his horses and drove his carriage, the woman who looked after the Jefferson sister who could not take care of herself. Now, none of these... No one mentioned them. None of these things necessarily mean that she wasn't talked about or mourned, but it means that she wasn't noteworthy enough to be preserved. Yeah. In no. a letter. And yeah. they knew, they knew from, from you, I've learned that they knew that these letters would be kept. I mean, they, they knew that this would mark history. Absolutely. Yeah. Everything Jefferson kept, he kept for a reason. Right. And so everything he didn't say is also omitted for a reason. Yeah. And so that, that baffles me that little Sal or his sister was not noteworthy enough to preserve in history. Like think, you said. Yeah. There's also the fact that the Virginians and Thomas Jefferson and Martha Washington, they burned all their letters with their spouse after they died. There was very much the feeling that personal correspondence didn't need to be preserved. And that yeah, doesn't the, necessarily mean that it wasn't valuable. It just means that it was it was for them. They didn't consider everything to be for history. But still, you would think that there would be a little bit more about Elizabeth and his family. Yeah, like details about the flood were... <laughs> preservable yeah he noted things and in his memorandum book it was a lot of stuff about what he bought what he owed what was owed to him notable weather events and when he talked about funerals it was because he was noting that he paid someone to perform the service yeah maybe i mean maybe it wasn't appropriate to talk about death yeah did he write about martha when she died um that would tell us a lot because he was enamored with her yeah definitely i think that we may have had some some more things than we had about elizabeth for sure okay and a lot of that comes from other family members too okay i mean i'm not necessarily blaming him for not ta- i mean who knows why it's not preserved but it sounds like it was a decision yeah i mean there's so much we don't know to add to the confusion there's an entry in a family bible from jefferson that he may have copied from his brother so it could very well be a mistake but there's an entry that marks Elizabeth Jefferson's date of death as January 1st, 1773, a full year before this earthquake and when her body was found. Wow. One author, Jonathan Daniels in the Randolphs of Virginia, seems to have taken that literally, and he believes that Elizabeth was probably missing and presumed dead for over a year before her body was found. Oh, wow. 
Susan Kern acknowledges that it's possible that the date January 1st could be accurate, but the year might be off, just like we all write the wrong year in January. Mm -hmm. She says that it's possible that Elizabeth and little Sal went missing in January and were presumed dead, it was winter, and that their bodies were not found until February. In that case, the earthquake scenario wouldn't even apply. So there are a lot of questions about this. It just goes to show how much some authors make assumptions and how they just try to fit together the puzzle pieces, whether or not they truly fit. Mm. I want to get back to Jupiter. In addition to building those columns on the front of Monticello, he also became the explosives expert for the plantation. One writer, Henry Weinsack, said that if Jupiter had wanted to, he could have blown up Monticello. And that would be a hell of a story, but that's not where we're going. Wow. Uh, had the power in his hands. Yeah. Jupiter always remained dedicated to the Jefferson family, too dedicated for his own good. Oh, well, because he was groomed. Yeah. He was groomed into, you know, slavery. In 1799, Jefferson promoted Jupiter to take care of his most prized possession, Monticello itself, safeguarding the house. But then Jupiter got sick. Thomas chose another of his servants to join him on a trip, but Jupiter insisted on going. He wanted to be the one to go with Thomas. Mm. Along the way, Jupiter got so sick that they had to stop, and Jefferson had him boarded at a tavern. Jupiter apparently believed that he'd been poisoned, and he thought his illness was supernatural in origin. He traveled over 20 miles to consult a black doctor to remove the fix. The doctor... I'm sorry, like... I'm not saying much, but my face is like twisted with <laughs> yeah. right now. I'm like glaring at you with a twisted face. I, That's I all said, I have to say. I said I there would be some bizarre deaths. And this is, is this how Jupiter dies? Oh, I didn't mean to spoil anything. Oh, spoiler alert. Man. Sorry. Maybe not. Okay. Yeah, it could turn around. Uh, oh, my gosh. Um, so the doctor or the conjurer gave him a dose that he said would either kill or cure him. What? And is I, this like the gypsy tears from Borat? <laughs> it, it's not much better. Oh, God. In a couple hours, Jupiter went into convulsions that lasted for hours and required oh. three men to hold him down. Oh, that's terrible. He lasted nine days before he died. That's a long time to be in so much pain. Yeah. So what was it that he gave him? Do we know? We don't know. What What could do that? Uh, now we need a doctor. On yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thomas Jefferson responded to the news of Jupiter's death by saying, I am sorry for him. As well as sensible, he leaves a void in my domestic administration, which I cannot fill up. Oh, thanks, Thomas. Yeah. His domestic administration. Mm-hmm. Not, not in, oh, so I lost good help today. Yeah. That's basically what, oh, gosh, could he, that, Thomas, so disappointing. I know. He often referred to the enslaved people at Monticello and his other farms as part of his family. Right. Which is interesting since some of them were quite literally his children. Right. And with him since he was young and and since they were young. Yeah. So you think even with these institutions in place, there's got to be some form of compassion. And I think there probably was. That developed. I just don't know the extent of it. Every time you almost get comfortable in the thought that, you know, people like Jefferson were just making their best way in this weird situation they were born into you get reminded that these relationships were really about money for Jefferson. Thinking about little Sal and Rachel and Jupiter, uh, I'm reminded of something that Thomas Jefferson wrote in 1820. Mm. 
mm-hmm. just some sensible farming advice that he was passing along. Oh, God, I'm scared. I know no error more consuming to an estate than that of stocking farms with men almost exclusively. I consider a woman who brings a child every two years as more profitable than the best man of the farm. Oh, right. It's just uh, very talking about people in such a subhuman way. They're commodities. It's, yeah, it's really gross. It's purely commodity. Mm-hmm. And again, there's. I, th- I know that this is so controversial because so many people say, well, he was a product of his time. But that's mm. that. I hate that argument. I couldn't hate that argument more. I just wrote about how that phrase is absolutely worthless. It doesn't mean anything and it should be retired. Yeah. Because it's not a justification. No, it's not a justification for committing atrocities. There were people at the same time who were violently anti-slavery. Mm-hmm. And these ideas weren't embraced by everyone. Saying someone was a product of their time is just basically saying it was okay what they did. Everything was okay because it was a long time ago. And some things are just universally, morally never okay. And you can't argue that people even agreed that they were okay at the time. At the time, there was plenty of people who were anti-slavery. Thomas Jefferson himself, if you just look at certain letters he wrote and certain things he did, was extremely anti-slavery. But when it came to doing anything about it that would actually inconvenience him, he didn't. And he had the power to do so much more. And he chose to kick the can down the road because it was just too difficult. Too inconvenient. And too unpopular. And and um, and probably bad for his farm. <laughs> yeah, and he did less than many of his peers, like George Washington. He didn't even free his slaves upon his death because of how poorly he managed his finances and his property. Mm-hmm. It left him in, in that situation where these people's lives were at stake so that he could have nice things and lots of books. Yeah. <sighs> Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Annette Gordon-Reed wrote in The Hemingses of Monticello, From his earliest days, Thomas was used to having a black person nurture him, follow him around, give him things, smooth the way, and make sure that the mundane things in life were taken care of so that he could concentrate on doing only those things he cared to do. It turned out that he had a lot of things he cared to do, and his ability to do them derived from his astral talent and tenacity and the enormous reservoir of help, slaves, at his disposal. It's just disgusting in lots of ways. It is. But at the same time, there were plenty of people like maybe John Adams who never had slave labor, who still became extremely successful thought leaders in their day. Right. Right. So your point is that it's not absolutely necessary to enslave someone in order to become successful. No, I'm just saying that I feel like some people might somehow think that, oh, it was worth it to get the Declaration of Independence. You know, if, if that's what it took to build the country then, you know, we don't have it anymore, so get over it. (laughs) No, there's nothing that makes it worth it. There's, yeah. So there have been several earthquakes in Virginia over the years. The most recent serious one, it was a 5.8 in 2011. It's pretty big. That earthquake was the strongest ever recorded east of the Rocky Mountains, and it was felt by more people than any other earthquake in the United States. Wow. It was felt as far as Canada, uh, it did at least $15 million worth of damage to, among other things, the Washington Monument, which was also probably built in part with slave labor. But that monument still stands, just like Jupiter's columns still hold up Monticello. 
as a testament to how slavery supported the nation's founding and Thomas Jefferson's family in particular. Mm. Well done. So yeah, that is the story of Elizabeth Jefferson and Little Sal and Jupiter. That's the story of, of the Jefferson family and the Evans mm-hmm. family and how this earthquake impacted them and their lives. Mm. Thank you for listening. Uh, <laughs> if you liked what you heard, this one might have been a little downer. This Hopefully is a little somber. <laughs> pick yourself up. Um, please subscribe. Write a review. Tell your friends. Follow us on Facebook and reach out. Uh, consider becoming a Patreon supporter. We will get some incredible behind-the-scenes goodies and more. Some cut scenes of us ranting even more about things that we wish we knew more about. I think Howard's pretty clearly going to cut out some some rants about racism and slavery because I'm just talking in circles. So you can hear that <laughs> specifically. <laughs> You're just talking circles. Ineloquently. <laughs> yeah, just go to patreon.com and search for Plotting Through the Presidents. Thank you for plotting. Thanks for plotting. There is no cap to this disgust load. <laughs> <laughs>